0: I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 135 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we just talk about whatever we want and we don't care what the rest of the world thinks about it. Maybe we care a little. (laughs) Mm, No, not really. I am Karen Peterson, joined as always by my amazing co-host, Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. How are you, Lauren?
2: I'm doing all right. It's it's been it's been a tiring week, but I'm I'm doing okay. And it is getting cold and blah here. So very much fall <laughs> weather in upstate New York.
0: <laughs> cold and blah. That sounds exciting. Like holding me blah. up for that.
2: Yeah, no autumn autumn can be gorgeous up here and and then at a certain point it begins to turn into just sort of gray and then it's gray for four months so that's
0: it'll be fun. gray and cold and it'll last for the rest of your life Jeez. <laughs> or something like that whatever <laughs> that line is from groundhog day <laughs>
2: it's so uh, yeah i mean no seriously like february up here so that a uh, groundhog day takes place in pennsylvania but it's yeah. basically the same thing like <laughs> february up here is just like there is there will be no end it is mm-hmm. going to last forever the sun will never come out again <laughs> and it's not like usually you know by february there's not tons of snow on the ground or anything like that but there's some which mm-hmm. means that it's just like kind of kind of gray and (laughs) blackish and brown like it's beginning to melt but the grass underneath is all dead it's just like yeah it's no fun
0: i spent a winter in quebec 20 years ago and um i remember it was on my birthday and we were outside doing some stuff and the sun had come out it was this beautiful blue sky after yeah weeks and weeks and weeks of it just being like not even gray it was white because it would snow a lot and then it's mm-hmm. like reflecting the snow so then the sky was just white and just so blob boring for weeks and this one day and it happened to be my birthday and it was just this beautiful blue sky the sun was out i felt warm so we like took off our coats and we just had our sweaters on and we're kind of running around just having a good old time and then i realized it was 25 degrees outside <laughs> i was like okay 25 degrees is
2: not supposed to feel warm <laughs> oh no man when when i was a kid i remember i once because i i grew up in the country obviously um and the the house that we lived at was a, a big old victorian house that was on about nine acres of land so it was a great place to be a kid uh that but sounds I neg- like a
0: storybook. That's amazing.
2: I negotiated with my parents that as soon as it got to be 45 degrees out, I was allowed to go outside without shoes on. Um because <laughs> I did not believe in shoes. I still don't particularly <laughs> like shoes. Uh it's I find it very offensive that we're supposed to put things on our feet. Um, and and it's they actually agreed and you know this kind of says something because just like you should not go outside without shoes on and 45 degree weather but it was like fine if you want it's
0: warm enough you know <laughs> oh <was> man <laughs> yeah crazy times that's this is all though why i live in california because it never is that cold here ever so you
2: you just have raging wildfires
0: not anymore they're all pretty much out (laughs) i think i haven't checked in a while but there aren't any near me right now that's good yeah yeah i mean we've had times where we've gone to the beach on christmas eve so it's like you know i'll take it i'm fine with that i got that so uh it's still october And that means it's still horror movie season. It's always horror movie season, but, you know, it's a little extra in October. Um, And this week, hey, Lauren, did you know, I don't know if you've heard, but women have actually directed horror movies. No. It's true. No,
2: that's a lie. That is feminist propaganda. It's
0: true. And they also, like, write and produce them sometimes, too. My God. I know. I know. Who would have thought?
2: i know it's like no but that's like what dudes do like dudes dudes like horror movies i mean you know yeah it's they're... totally
0: not a girl thing I know. yeah not at all mm-hmm. well and that's that's the other thing too is when women direct them sometimes they're really good so that's what we're gonna talk about today feminine horror movies directed by women and we're really excited about this i'm very excited to talk about this i've been waiting for this for weeks um so to start off Lauren, who are some of either some of your favorite uh, female directors of horror or a couple of your favorite horror movies that are directed by women?
2: I mean, you know, it's interesting In preparing for this episode, I was like, okay, we need to have like a a broad sort of swath of, of horror films, you know, because women have been directing horror films, writing horror films, et cetera. Like before the contemporary moment, a lot of the ones that we cite tend to be things like the and i'm not saying that this is that these are bad films in any sense but it's things like the invitation uh the love witch um maybe a little bit earlier american psycho stuff like that which are great films um but i think it's also important to you know kind of go back and and note some of the great female directors slightly earlier so i know that our our good friend nanina mentioned that she considered the hitchhiker uh, a horror film which i think is an interesting perspective to take it's certainly uh different from uh from you know a film noir or something like that but that's kind of an early example of a woman directing a very male-centric horror movie Mm-hmm. uh so i love i lo- I do love the hitchhiker i i have to say i have come late to the party on these but the slumber party massacre series are just <laughs> so much fun and i know we're gonna talk about them but i just want to talk about them for a moment anyways just the, uh, yeah like i I've, I've enjoyed them i haven't seen the third one yet i admit that um but the second one like was just fantastic and of course we have talked a lot about the first one but uh yeah the, those are great and then i also love i love the love witch um the invitation uh recently saw we have always lived in the castle which i guess tends more towards the gothic uh gothic horror uh, to a certain degree but it's based on a shirley jackson novel um which is great and it's directed by a woman uh tigers are not afraid which we have mentioned in no- numerous times on this podcast there are a lot of good ones you know there really are <laughs>
0: yeah there's so many and i i think it's you know it's we've talked about this before too where sometimes it gets so frustrating to think back on movies that you always liked and then discover that they were directed by women and you never knew you know and uh, i just had that happen this week and i'm trying to remember which one it was where i was just like wait a minute i never realized that was a female director i can't now i can't remember which movie it was but but yeah and and so i think of movies especially from like the 80s and 90s that um i kind of grew up on that i loved and um i mean slumber party massacre i didn't watch in 1982 obviously because i was five but <laughs> but uh but um but that was one that was like i i didn't see it until i knew it was a female director because i didn't want to watch it but then there's other movies like um like buffy the vampire slayer i Only knew Joss Whedon's name associated with that. And it wasn't until years after I'd seen the movie originally that I found out that he was supposed, he had expected to direct the movie and it got taken away from him and given to Fran, I don't even know how to say her name, Kazooie, Kazai, I'm not sure, but, um, but it was a female director and i was just like oh this makes so much sense and then of course he didn't like what she did and how things were changed so he went and made the series which back in the late 90s the series was great but i think that the way that the character is handled in the movie is i prefer it and um i i mean not to i like the show too but Mm -hmm. i just i liked the playfulness of it and the the colorfulness of it when it was the movie and i i think that we'll talk more about the differences between female and male directors especially when it comes to telling female-centric stories but um yeah but yeah i also i mean i love um i love american psycho i think my very favorite though is the babadook by jennifer yeah i love that movie so much and i think the main reason that i do is because even though it's definitely kind of this monster supernatural movie it's really not about that and it's about something much much different and i think that when you get to you have to watch the whole thing to really understand the totality of what she's getting at but it's so brilliantly done and um it ends up being this really beautiful uh, allegory about grief and, and learning to live with that. And I, th- I think it's just Jennifer Kent, man. <laughs> She's amazing. Yeah. And it's so frustrating to watch her not get the, the attention that she really deserves. I still maintain that if there had been a male name attached to the Nightingale, it would have been nominated for 10 Oscars. I still believe that
2: i well i mean i think that we've talked about this before where where you what you watch some movies you are just like you know if this was directed by a man everybody would be saying that this is like the greatest film of the year stuff like yep. that um, and
0: you could change nothing yeah except for the name of the director and that's what would happen
2: no exactly exactly mm-hmm. um but you know it's it's interesting because because there are a lot of different kinds of horror films obviously but i'm always interested when female directors take on what are Male-centric stories. So, just thinking about something like American Psycho, which is such a (laughs) male-centric narrative, right? Like to the point that there's, you know, there's all of this disagreement even about whether or not um, whether or not the book is satirical, (laughs) or (laughs) or if it's like actually being serious. And and the general attitude has always been, oh yeah, it's satirical, it's parodic, it's like making fun of this kind of thing. But there's an indulgence in the violence and an indulgence in the perspective of the character that is very troubling. And um, and of course, some of the things that Freddie Stinellis has done since, you're kind of like, meh, okay. Uh, may- are we sure that it was satirical?
0: <laughs> yeah, but- well, and it's funny because he's so misogynist. He comes across that way that I love that his best known work <laughs> was adapted yeah. by a woman. It makes well, me so endlessly happy
2: (laughs) and i mean he he has said shit about female directors too like he's talked about how horror really isn't a a female genre and female directors are not necessarily great directors or anything like that just like dude People are gonna have forgotten your novels, but they're gonna remember the adaptation of American Psycho. Oh yeah, and like yeah, it's gotta drive him crazy. But but that's a really interesting film because you you think about it, you're like yeah, this is a very masculine movie, right? This mm-hmm. is very it's a very masculine story, but you've got this very tongue-in-cheek attitude that is coming through, in the, and there is definitely a critique in the film. Um, whether or not there's a critique in the novel that's, that's sort of inherent in it. And I, I'm always interested when female directors take on that kind of thing, similar to the Slumber Party Massacre series where you've got this very well-known you know, um, slasher genre and then that's what it's playing into. It's playing, and it's playing into exploitation films, et cetera. Um, but you've got female writers, female directors, et cetera, uh, actually engaging with it. And there's a slyness that comes through. Mm -hmm. Um, you get some similar things to uh, the films of of stephanie Rothman, who directed the velvet vampire Uh, which again is is it's a question of like you know is this an exploitation film is this um you know an art film what is this and it's it's similar in that she's playing into uh, some of the stereotypes and some of the tropes that are already established about exploitation films like nineteen, it was 1971 um, and kind of doing something different with them. And and it's interesting when female directors actually get to do that.
0: Yeah. And um, I think that we're seeing more and more uh, opportunities for them as as time goes on. It's still very much, you know, mostly in the independent route but they're starting to find um funding and that kind of thing um i remember gosh was it like two years ago now when that kerfuffle happened with jason bloom blum saying that he couldn't find anyone uh any female directors yeah. to come work yeah. at Plum <laughs> house and uh it was just like okay you can't just ask already really successful female directors like he had said that he had approached jennifer kent and she had turned down everything that they had offered and i was just like are you trying to tell me that you asked jennifer kent to direct truth or dare please tell me you did (laughs) not ask jennifer kent to direct truth or dare
2: (laughs) but uh well well, that's i mean i mean yeah that's the thing like it's not the role of female directors to just to to, you know give credence to people who can't find female directors you know it's like well jennifer kent turned us out just like did did you maybe not offer her something that was any good right like there's that too Or like why would you ask
0: her to direct something that someone else wrote she's an amazing writer (laughs) give her some money to make her movie
2: yeah exactly so but to get you know to give blumhouse credit now they do they are getting female directors in there they are getting like different perspectives yeah um you know so there i i think that there's a willingness at least with them to uh to try to get more diversity in their directing pool and their writing pool which is is good i mean you know i don't think it's it's too little of course but it's a start
0: right well and to be fair to jason blum um he did pretty immediately walk back his comments and was like okay i didn't really say exactly what i meant and because he had made it sound like he had searched high and low and couldn't find anyone and he was like no no no, that's not what happened i apologize and i do need to do better and so yeah now he is working with i can't think of any of the upcoming titles but he has a couple in development now with female directors so it's like good all right that's a step in the right direction now let's make it more um and and it's like man the invisible man was really good this year and i don't want to take anything away from um uh what's his face that directed it (laughs) oh Uh, my gosh yeah i don't want to take anything away from him because i think he's a really talented director but then there is that sense of like hmm if this had had a female perspective maybe the relationship between the sisters would have made a little more sense you know or things like that or at least a female co-screenwriter you know something yeah um it it would have probably just cleaned it up a little bit you know and made made things flow a little bit more and taken it from like a b plus to an a or whatever so
2: well, um, and and I think that, so, you know, in, in talking about something like The Invisible Man, which is a, such a female centric story and it's very yeah. well done. And I think that there are male directors and writers obviously who do well with those kinds of stories uh-huh. um, and are capable of making really fascinating feminist films. Um, but again, like if you compare it to something like The Babadook, which has, takes a very, uh, you know, a kind of very common um, concept of monstrosity, right? and the the problems of a woman who has lost her husband and who basically resents her you know she's she's grieving um but she also resents her son for his for her husband's death and and the way that that is portrayed and the depth with which that is portrayed because it could have been very much like the evil mother kind of um kind of plot it could have been there are a lot of different ways it could have gone and we have a lot of those horror tropes uh that that is you know usually referred to in a broad sense as the monstrous feminine but the film deals with that kind of monstrosity and that kind of anger and guilt and all of those things that are kind of wrapped up in that story um having it having it being done with a a a female director and a female writer makes it more interesting makes it more deep and i think understands the experience of women generally in motherhood and what motherhood actually means and what being a good mother actually looks like and what it doesn't look like in a way that male directors and male writers simply don't process in the same way
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i was actually listening to a podcast this week um two people that i know and they were—they did an episode on the Babadook, and neither of them had ever seen it before. And so they, you know, they're talking about the movie, and and one of the hosts, Meg Walter, she's she said that she was part way into it, and she could just tell. And, and Meg is a, a mom, and and uh, she's married and everything, and she was like she could tell part way in without even looking it up that it <laughs> was at least written by a woman because of the way that it does portray those really hard feelings of motherhood and the isolation and how even when you need help you don't ask for it for a lot of different reasons and everyone's reasons are different but i just thought that was really interesting that um someone who's really not like a film writer. She has a podcast where she just like watches new movies or watches movies and talks about them, but she's really not like a critic or anything, but it was really obvious to her. So I I think that's, that was just kind of interesting. I was just like, Oh,
2: cool. Well, it's, it's that pressure. I, I think that that film does really well. The, the pressure to be a good mom. Yeah. Right. Which is so much a part of female culture and so much a part of the way that women are valued. Mm
1: hmm.
2: Um, and the way that women are treated as being like you have to be this this specific thing, right? You have to do everything right. You and and essentially, you know, and the film is dealing with a woman who has lost her husband, resents her son, and is not really allowing herself and is not really being allowed to process that guilt and a or the 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 resentment and the grief and the guilt in a healthy way. And some of that is because it's there's pressure for her to be a particular way right yeah um and you get a little bit of that as well in uh processing guilt processing motherhood so one of the interesting films i think that does this really well is um is alice lowe's prevenge which mm-hmm. uh, and alice lowe had already written uh, she's a comedian primarily but she had also written um sightseers ben Wheatley's sightseers and um and so she makes this this film while she's pregnant right yeah. about a woman who essentially her unborn child begins telling her to murder
0: people <laughs> and so
2: there's like her unborn child is like this accomplice
0: serial killer <laughs> well it's um, it's specific people it's yeah her, yeah yeah her husband no, exactly. died in this accident well not even an accident there was a mishap that happened while a bunch of guys were out climbing they had to cut him loose to save themselves and Mm -hmm. so now yeah she and her unborn child are plotting against all the other people
2: (laughs) (laughs) and and it's really well done and it's funny and it's scary and and it, it works really well but i i think that there's again it's it's that attitude that there are so many films um about motherhood and about the fear of motherhood. so you know if you even if you even think about films like the omen rosemary's baby uh um the brood etc so there's there's all of this like terror surrounding motherhood Mm -hmm. and give you know giving birth to monstrous children or uh the simply the act of being pregnant generally just kind of what the brood and um uh and rosemary's baby are about but so then you've got this film that takes those tropes and takes (laughs) those concepts And kind of runs with it and and tells it from a female perspective and tells it from a, you know, a somewhat humorous perspective about like, oh, my God, this unborn child being a a killer. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a completely different interpretation. You're like, okay, no woman or no man could have ever made that movie. Right. Mm -hmm. And I doubt whether a woman who has not experienced pregnancy could have made that movie. But it does something so different with these very recognizable tropes. And it's it's great as a result.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and it's i mean you're absolutely right because um i don't even think a man would ever think of something like this because they don't understand the the changes that happen i mean i've i've never had a kid but i've had many many friends who have had many children and they talk about how you just feel so out of control of everything around you and and what's happening in your own body and and so yeah it's very specific experience that only certain people would even be capable of thinking of let alone making
2: and yeah, it is funny and, and it is funny and i just admire the fact that she made it while she was pregnant it was like yeah that is that is interesting <laughs> that is an interesting choice
0: it's true it's true um, I think one director that we should really talk about is Karin Kasama, because, you know, when I was trying to think through, like, female directors of horror movies, it's like there's so many that have done one or, you know, yeah, pretty much. there's so many great uh, female directed horror movies, but it's like so many women have only made, like, one of them. And Karin Kasama, I think, has probably done more than that i don't know like she's someone i think of as like that's just kind of her wheelhouse i guess but um with movies like the invitation um with jennifer's body with um uh what else she directed one of the segments of xx i'm trying to think she, she she,
2: she made destroyer
0: which yeah not, which i don't really a horror film it's not a horror film it's kind of a thriller um yeah. so but it's, so it still has like that kind of element to it so um but yeah so Karin kasama which apparently is the correct pronunciation of her name <laughs> so um what what are some things about her that you think kind of separate her from other directors more male directors that make similar types of films
2: uh i think again some of it is is just perspective so a good example is jennifer's body you know again talking about tropes um the the tropes that she is dealing with there are very recognizable and in fact i remember avoiding going to see jennifer's body when it came out because i I saw i was just like oh this is like you know a typical kind of slightly misogynist hot girl gets possessed kind of story Mm -hmm. you know uh and and then of course that's not what it was at all that was kind of the way it was marketed unfortunately and and it was failed as a result but that's not what the film really is it's taking that trope that concept you know it's like oh this hot girl who gets possessed and and is again going around killing people uh and 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 takes the 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 literal physical body of megan fox and then kind of runs off with it and and does something different um and, and I think that again, no male director really could have done that in the same way because it, it takes an understanding of the way that women are looked at and the horror of that at some level, the horror of the way that men look at women and the way that men treat female bodies. And it, it bends some of those tropes and concepts as a result.
0: hmm yeah um i know we've talked about jennifer's body a little bit before but i think it is really important to talk about here the marketing because i i do remember when it came out they they did talk about the fact that it was written by diablo cody who had done juno by that point and so people knew her work um but they really didn't talk about the director and i just assumed it was a male director why wouldn't i you know and um and yeah it was like oh here's hot megan fox and the trailers looked terrible it just did not look like a movie i would be interested in because it looked like it was more about exploiting women than about calling out the exploitation of women and if i had known that at the time it would have been a much different story and they've even talked about that um in fact i think there was um, a reunion that they did a couple years ago when it was the 10th anniversary of the release must've been last year. Um, Cause I think it came out in 2009 originally. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And they were talking about how the marketing really killed the movie. And, and of course you have to think too, that 10 years ago, 11 years ago, most of the critics were male and they go in there thinking they're getting this movie about hot Megan Fox. And it turns out to be something different and um kind of calling them out and men don't like that so much and so they're going to trash the movies then it's getting terrible critics reviews and terrible trailers and so of course people weren't going to go see it and it just destroyed that movie and which is really unfair because it's really really smart and um and it is it is funny and it's you know it's it's dark but really colorful and it's just one that i think if people like i mean if you haven't seen it by now give it a shot it's i think it's on stars or Cinemax or something but go rent it it's worth it and um really immerse yourself in it and and really listen to what they're saying because i mean megan fox's character the whole point is the fact that um she is this this hot girl but uh there's a lot more to her than that and it's calling out the fact that nobody ever pays attention to that they only notice her her face they don't know that she's like this real person inside and yeah oh man i'm gonna watch that again today
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and actually i think that I'm trying to think back to, to the first time I saw Jennifer's body. I honestly think it was like last year. Yeah. Um. And I finally saw it because so many people had talked about it as being like, oh, this is actually doing really, really different things um, mm-hmm. than what it looks like. And, and I, and I did like the fact that it isn't just like, it's not really about, it is a revenge story, right? But it's not completely a revenge story. It's not just about, you know, this hot girl who gets exploited and then takes her vengeance right so it no. isn't that kind of a revenge story but it has those elements to it and and it is kind of like oh she suddenly enters into this power
1: mm-hmm. that
2: um up until that point had it was basically being exploited by other people yeah and then suddenly she's like oh i can exploit this myself right yeah and and that is what makes it work so well and and makes it such an interesting an interesting movie. I do want to say about Karen Kassama also. I know that there's been talk about her doing a Dracula movie, and we've mentioned that a couple of times. I don't know exactly what status that has right now, but oh my god, I really want to see it.
0: <laughs> I need that movie so bad. <laughs> that would be amazing. I need it. Yeah. Um and well, I think I think on a slightly tangent, slight tangent from Jennifer's Body let's talk a little bit we'll come back to to karen kusama because i do want to talk about the invitation too but i think that a movie that relates thematically is the love witch by anna biller
2: oh yes yeah, that an
0: interesting film <laughs> that is an interesting film um but funny enough has the same cinematographer as jennifer's body david mullen um
2: as i said earlier i think on our slack i completely believe it. like thinking about those two films like yep i can mm -hmm. see that
0: yeah and uh anyway so let's talk a little bit about the love witch which is (laughs) it's set to look like this movie from the 70s the costumes the the harsh lighting um the really colorful look of it um the main girl elaine is that her name um yeah she drives this this like 66 mustang might be a 65 i'm not so great on my early mustang models but um but yeah and but but then it's like she pulls up to this old victorian style house that she's gonna live in and the girl that she's renting from drives a current model bmw and it's like wait and they're on cell phones and stuff so uh it's kind of this weird blend of of time periods but it's such an interesting it's such a uh it's weird but i love it <laughs> i just watched it again <laughs> last night because i couldn't re- remember the details of it <laughs> i mean, just like it's it's just it's weird <laughs> it's like it is
2: weird it, it really it really is and and it's um you know talk about playing with tropes because it's also directly referential to vertigo and to um another kim novak film bell book and candle which i don't know if you've seen that
0: i have not seen um, that one, no.
2: but it's it's similar in that it's it's actually kim novak and jimmy stewart again uh <laughs> and and it it involves kim novak is is a witch she's a witch that lives in greenwich village oh, okay. with her brother who is played by jack lemon who is a warlock and but it's okay i need very, to see this movie now <laughs> it's and so she it's it's very similar to some to like um things like uh, uh bewitched right where she falls in love with this guy who's just a normal dude um and and she she does all these witchy things to try to get him right but it is very very stylized and it's very 1950s it's very technicolor etc and you can see like if you ever watch bell book and candle you'd be like ah i know where the love witch got it right (laughs) um but yeah but the love witch is interesting because it is it like you say it is this time like there's no clear time period there's no clear like where is this actually taking place etc and so and and so much of it is um basically about this woman who is fulfilling uh male fantasies to the point that they really don't want them fulfilled like Mm -hmm. and, and she's she's taking these fantasies to their logical extent and of course it's horrible because they become obsessed with her they like are basically literally dying of love for her all of that <laughs> but she can't get that you know true intimacy or true love that she is desperately searching for and so it's got some fascinating commentary uh in addition to being I don't want to call it camp because i think that it's it's higher than camp in a lot of ways because it's using all of those elements very deliberately, mm-hmm. and it's using all those references very deliberately. But it's, it's a very postmodern pastiche kind of film, yeah. Um, that's doing some fascinating things.
0: Yeah, and it is interesting because I keep saying that word with this movie, but it's true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as as she is trying, because she really does want to be loved. She's had this this marriage fault heart um and that didn't end well and she's just trying to find love but she doesn't quite know how to get it uh well she doesn't know how to get it in any normal way because apparently she hasn't looked in a mirror (laughs) but she she casts these spells on men and kind of forces them to to fall in love with her but then it's like they become so desperate in their love for her that then it's like annoying and she's like no that's not what i want like i still want a man (laughs) and i I love not that you know (laughs) exactly i
2: love that i love the fact that it's just like oh this is really annoying (laughs) please
0: stop jeez (laughs) well and maybe that's why i like it so much because it reminds me of kind of myself like i you know i'm not opposed to love and relationships and all of that but i don't i don't like the neediness that comes <laughs> like i've been in relationships <laughs> where they just be beca- not not that not not that men are obsessed with me that sounds really wrong
2: but <laughs> <laughs> just own it karen just so just like men are obsessed with me oh my god they are
0: they are they just you know they can't help themselves but um but no it's like i just if I'm going to be in a relationship, I just want it to just be like, let's just enjoy spending our time together. I don't need someone to need me so much. Like, dude, go have your own life and let's just meet up tonight for dinner. You know, (laughs)
2: like let's, let's face it. Men are a lot needier than women in a lot of ways, but (laughs) I do think that that's something that the love, witch does in an interesting way, you know, it's because it's the story. It's the story about um, toxic love. Right. Yeah. And, and it's about her being desperate for, this kind of the this very perfect heterosexual romance right Mm -hmm. and and she's got a very particular idea all of which has been absorbed from patriarchal culture like it's very much in in line with you know the typical almost 1950s attitude towards towards romantic relationships right and in seeking that she can never find she can't find it in in a real and meaningful way and so yeah it becomes annoying right um (laughs) it's just like these these men are not what she wants and and the fact is none of them can be what she wants ultimately right uh and and they are trapped by it and she's trapped by it and so it's funny and it's tragic and it's it's a very like I, i keep on saying fascinating it's it's a fascinating commentary i think on what films promote and what um what our culture's concept of romance actually is and how damaging it can honestly be because like i say it's taking these fantasies to to their logical extent and when you take them to their logical extent they're either horrible or annoying or just just like this is not really what i want you know
0: mm-hmm. now here's something interesting uh there's that word again with this movie but um <laughs> so i found this article last night by david mullins uh, the cinematographer this is actually how i've how i went down the rabbit hole of discovering it. it was the same one that did jennifer's body but um he wrote this article for uh the american society of cinematography uh, website and he was talking specifically about the camera techniques and the the lighting choices and everything to really give it that um 50s 60s 70s look to it um but he said that it's a drama with horror and thriller elements to it what do you think of that
2: hmm i mean i i think that if i if i were pressed to categorize that film i would call it horror because there's so much supernatural
0: mm-hmm. to do
2: with it and there also is yeah there also is horror yeah in it like there there's violence there's blood there's but also just like even some of the techniques that are used and again, some of the tropes that are being used Mm
1: -hmm. are
2: very much horror, horror tropes. So I would call it horror, but I don't know. It's, it's difficult to categorize because I even know that, you know, Anna Biller who directed it um, got very annoyed that people kept on calling it camp.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And, and she was like, no, this is not camp. This is not, you know, trying to be campy or anything like that. And I think that she read, you know, and, and you can agree or disagree with it, but I think that she read this, this, feeling about it being camp as as minimizing it at some level right we're saying like oh this is just it's style over substance right yeah
0: um
2: which i and i kind of agree with that in, in the sense that it's definitely a substantial film mm-hmm. uh that and part of the reason why it's a substantial film is its use of style and yeah. what that means and what that means uh you have to have i think a certain degree of cinematic knowledge um or film history knowledge in order to completely get what it is that she's doing with the stylization
0: right well it's Um, like when people use that term elevated horror and it discounts the good things that are done in the non-elevated horror films you know it's it's we have to be careful with these terms because they do take on or or uh, diminish other aspects of of films i just going back really quickly though i just thought it was an interesting choice to of mullins to say that this was a drama because to me it didn't feel like a drama at all it felt like maybe a satire um but
2: yeah it definitely has satirical elements to it you know i i think that even some critics kept on referring to it as a parody although it's kind of difficult what is it what is it supposed to be parodying exactly right.
0: <laughs> and that's why i think satire makes more sense because i feel like it it mm-hmm. really has a strong point of view and a strong message that it's making or point that it's making about modern day relationships
2: yeah yeah it's i, don't know. I it's a difficult film to categorize actually
0: uh, it is and that's part of why it's so great annabelle make more movies
2: i i do know that for a while at least i don't know if she's still uh looking into this but she was going to uh, make a version of the bluebeard story oh uh which is a i think i think that could be really fascinating i actually recently saw the uh catherine um uh Brea f- film film uh, of bluebeard which is a very feminist take on the story but i think that you know alan billers particularly her the, the way that she uses style and the way that she uses color could be
0: mm-hmm. great yeah well and and to go back to a conversation we had many weeks ago i think anna biller is one that we could say is an auteur when it comes to filmmaking because she not only writes and directs and produces her own stuff like she she does the costumes she does the the set design she actually even paints her own sets i mean and she sews the costumes so she it's like she really basically makes the movie herself and it very much comes out the way that she wants it, is realizing her her very specific vision and it's interesting because not too many women get to do that very few i would say get to do that yeah um, she, she's
2: kind of uh i think that some of it was just by necessity almost uh yeah initially, maybe initially mm-hmm. but yeah she does have a lot of control over her films that's obvious
0: mm-hmm yeah let's see, um, what else should we talk about?
2: Well, I, I think that we should talk about, you know, we've talked a lot about directors Yeah. Um, and, and a number of these directors, like people like Annabelle or, or uh, Jennifer Kent who actually are involved in the writing of their screenplays, et cetera. So they have a lot of control over what is being represented and how it's being represented. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, there are lots of other roles of women in horror, behind the camera and so you you also get writers female writers and female producers who work with some very famous uh horror directors and the two that i'm thinking of are uh, daria nicolodi and deborah hill Mm -hmm. um so so nickelodeon i'm annoyed that i i was annoyed that i didn't
0: mention her (laughs) because literally you mentioned her like five minutes after we finished recording last week you're like i forgot yeah Yeah, because
2: literally after i got after we finished recording uh the giallo episode i turned around and i was like oh i'm gonna finish watching deep red because i hadn't finished it and daria nicolodi appears in deep red she's an actress in that um and I i believe that's actually where she and dario argento met uh she you know there's all there have been a number of questions about how influential and how much she has she actually did on a number of his films but we do know that she's credited as co-writer uh on Suspiria Mm
1: -hmm.
2: which I think is very indicative and you know I even last week I was saying that the original Suspiria I would not say is anti-feminist at at any level I wouldn't say that's completely feminist either um not in the same way that the remake is but I think that it's important to note that probably one of Argento's most well-known and, and arguably his greatest film was written in concert with a woman, and that her input. You know, and, and there's always a question when you have co-writers. You know, how much did she actually do? How much was she actually did she actually influence? But uh, I, I think that's indicative that the story that is a primarily female. There are very few male characters in it. Is partially written by a woman i don't know that seems important to me what do you think
0: <laughs> oh yeah i definitely think that matters i mean just kind of like what i was mentioning a bit ago with uh the invisible man and how certain things could have been handled a little bit more smoothly a little bit more deeply if it had had the female perspective to it and i think that that when you look at some of these um even older films that have oh, sorry the neighbor just started hammering something that's fun that's gonna go on the rest of the morning um i hope it doesn't pick it up on the mic but uh anyway but i think (laughs) that that,
2: was
0: (laughs) oh can you hear that shoot
2: very very vaguely i was like is someone playing bass
0: (laughs) nope it's the neighbor he's been working on this like porch thing on the side of his house for about a year (laughs) and he'll just randomly like just start hammering at weird times so anyway um but yeah i think that they help they help make these films deeper more interesting um and really give you that needed perspective um i did want to mention just because nanina will be very upset at us if we don't um but uh nanina threw out nanina gilder uh also wanted to mention wendy toy um who did direct but she also Uh, wrote and produced uh things too but uh she mentioned in the picture and says which is as delightful a little slice of supernatural horror as ever committed to celluloid Mm -hmm. so um
2: in in the picture is the uh is the section of three cases of murder yes directed yeah
0: yes and we did that episode then nanina joined us on and found out and this is why I, i think it's worth mentioning in right here is the fact that like that entire movie would have played out much differently and the the three cases would have gone in a much different order if they had listened to wendy and um and done it the way that it was originally envisioned to be and that totally changes the experience of watching that film
2: sorry yes absolutely uh i agree the the um Uh, The other person that I I just mentioned and that I always forget her and she really should not be forgotten and she's actually getting more and more credit, which is proper is Deborah Hill. Yeah. uh, Who was John Carpenter's producer and produced things like Halloween and The Fog and um, I think Escape from New York uh, and a couple of others. And she, so again, you know, in a similar way to someone like Daria Nicolodi, there's always this open question of, okay, definitely these films would be different if it were not for her. Uh, but how much influence did she actually have? And, and I think that it's important to note those, those women who work behind the scenes, particularly female editors is another thing. And um, um, I admittedly did not do enough research to be able to say this but, uh, uh, for, for this particular episode, but the number of women who cut together these films and who make editorial decisions uh, that and, and the male directors pay attention to them, right? They trust them in order to do this. But that's part and parcel of how these films are come to be and how they become the classics that we know them as. So, you know, you can't really talk about John Carpenter without mentioning the fact that Deborah Hill is one of the major forces behind a number of his great horror films.
0: Right yeah and in fact let's just take a little look here at the work of deborah hill uh she wrote halloween and the fog and halloween 2 um and yeah well at least she has screenwriting credits i think they're co-written but um yeah and escape from la pretty much all the halloween movies um and then she gets based on credits for the current group of them but um, but then as far as producing, like, here are the movies that she produced. Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, The Dead Zone, Clue, um, Head of Office, which I've never seen, Adventures in Babysitting. <laughs> like, I mean, these are just so many great movies. Big Top Pee Wee, not as good as the first one, <laughs> but that's okay. And... Let's see. yeah just so many other things so i mean she just deborah hill man amazing and yeah. definitely does not get enough credit for all the work that she did she sadly died in 2005 and she was pretty young when she died she was only in her 50s
2: well and even if you look at that run from 1978 to uh to whatever like 86 87 yeah, mm-hmm. but but even just in terms of of horror um you've got halloween the fog escape from new york and halloween Toad two both of which she's credited on as a writer and a producer yeah so that is quite a set of films
0: mm-hmm.
2: um you know if, even if you discount anything else that she just produced and she didn't have any writing credit on um that's that's like some of the foundations of the slasher genre for God's sake. you know certainly some of the best slasher films that have been made and you've got this woman who is at least you know has some influence on the way that they were made and what they look like and uh and what happens in them
0: yeah well and and if you think about it too uh you ask you ask a group of people who is the best final girl and most of them like i've seen so many uh so many surveys like this and laurie strode always comes out on top and it's like i can't even think of the name of the main girl in um friday the 13th you know (laughs) like uh i can never remember the name of that girl and but laurie strode is just this you know this memorable character and she is this 17 year old girl she survives this guy doing some really like some of the she makes mistakes along the way but she's mostly really smart and it's like man i think we really have to pay attention to and give credit to the fact that she was formed with a with a very strong female influence Mm -hmm. and so she's not just this girl that's about like you know how does sydney describe it in scream like some girl with blonde hair and big boobs who just runs up the stairs when she should be running out the front door you know and i think that's that's female influence helps create this really strong memorable character
2: yeah definitely and she and she's like you say she's a proactive character she her reaction to the the fact of the killings is both very natural like you're kind of like yeah that's about how i think i would react yeah. if this was happening to me right so she's in and that says she's a good audience surrogate right mm-hmm. um without being just a total pushover right she doesn't like you say she doesn't run up the stairs hide in a closet and and just wait to get saved essentially right. she actually does fight back she actually does try to um to warn people she tries to get people's attention like all of the things that she's supposed to do she does and i think that that is why she's such a good final girl um and why she's probably a more beloved final girl is is because she she is proactive she is an autonomous human being she's not there solely to be in danger Mm -hmm. uh, and get out of danger right she actually is doing something she's a full character
0: right and it's interesting how different that because that comes out around uh i don't know if it was the same year but it was in that same kind of era when carrie came out and i love how you got some flack for saying that it was accident (laughs) how did you word it It was accidentally uh
2: accident yeah it's accidentally something like that but it's
0: it's accidentally (laughs)
2: cathartic and right so so a couple guys were like accidental i was like yes i have watched (laughs) enough Palma films i know enough about horror literature and i have read enough stephen king to know that it was an accident
0: Mm -hmm. yep exactly
2: a standby that it is an accidentally cathartic film and they have have no idea what they were doing but somehow they actually managed to tap into something that is very true about the female experience which is that (laughs) every 16 year old girl at some point really wishes she could just murder all of her bullies with telekinetic powers it's true it's it's not horrifying (laughs) it is incredibly cathartic
0: (laughs) yep and also if you think about just the difference with Jamie Lee Curtis who is you know just the most amazing uh star ever. I love her in Halloween, but um you look at her character in Prom Night which came out 2 years later and how it's so much different. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and I think that you really can't deny that a may- a big reason for for that difference is the influence of women yeah
2: no there's no doubt about that
0: yeah um i also in this vein wanted to talk a little bit about when they're directing pairs and i had a couple specifically Mm -hmm. that i wanted to to mention one is severin fiala and veronica franz who are austrian and they have done two films together that i have seen i know they've seen they've done more than that but i've seen good night mommy which i mentioned a week or two ago maybe last week um which is about these twin boys who uh their mom has been gone their father is not around uh their mom's been gone getting some plastic surgery and she comes home and they start to become convinced that she's been replaced by someone else and she's not really their mom um and then just this year they had an english language film called the lodge which came out right before quarantine and that is riley keogh and uh, jaden martell i'm trying to think who played the little girl in that um but riley keogh plays this girl who is about to become a stepmother to these children and they go off to this lodge up out in the middle of nowhere to bond her fiance the kid's dad leaves them all alone because he has to go back to work it's over christmas time and some really strange things start happening in the house Uh, and it just gets more and more frightening for her and trying to deal with with this scare and also dealing with these two children that she really doesn't know and has no real relationship with. So, um, I don't know. What, what have you, have you seen either of those movies?
2: I haven't actually, I have had the lodge on my list for a while and I've also had Goodnight mommy on my list for a while. Um, I've, I've sort of put off seeing the lodge because a number of people have said that it's very bleak. Yes. And I, I have not in, in this pandemic, uh i have not felt a great desire to watch bleak
0: movies yeah that's fair (laughs) um i i saw it and i have not watched it again it's one that i need to revisit when i first saw it i i don't know what i was expecting but i think because it's so bleak it was just like wow this is not there's nothing happy about this movie at all it starts off with this tragedy and just gets more and more sad from there and and just like hopeless so yeah probably not the best time of year to be watching this movie or the best year to be watching this movie and it's really unfortunate for them that it came out like in february but of 2020 <laughs> well I,
2: yeah and I, I remember when it came out because i actually did it was before like the the everything shut down and everything uh, and everything there were a couple of times where i was like oh i should go see it Mm-hmm. um because it was playing in various uh theaters in the city and and each time i was like oh i should go see it and i was like or i could go see birds of prey again <laughs> and each yep. time i wound up going to see birds of prey again so that's yeah. how that's how i spent my my time before the pandemic
0: <laughs> <laughs> i've apparently watched birds of prey six times this year by the way i feel wow. like that should be higher <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow you need to watch it again you watch i do I, think, I do i think i've watched it eight or nine times
0: now yeah maybe that's something else i'll watch i've got a whole afternoon of nothing planned so now i know my double feature but anyway um but yeah no i wanted to to just talk a little bit about um these co-directors because um, another one that came out this year actually just came out is a movie called save yourselves which is co-directed by um, Alex Houston Fisher and Eleanor Wilson. And I just I just was thinking about how in a similar way to when you have female writers and producers involved, I think that there's something really interesting that happens when you have these uh, male-female directing teams and how that can influence a story too. And I mean, every team uh handles things differently. Sometimes um they'll direct the entire movie right there together and make decisions on the spot. Sometimes they'll kind of divide and conquer. Um but I think that it also in a much similar way uh to what we were just talking about. I think that it really can help deepen the um deepen the relationships in a film, deepen the characters, deepen the way that a story is told do you have any thoughts on that
2: yeah no i i agree with you and I, I think that it's it's similar in what we're talking about in terms of female writers and female producers and editors etc in that you've got with, with directors you've you've got the that collaboration right mm-hmm. and and again and most of the time you can see the influence of a, a you know a, fem- a more feminine perspective um and again that's not to say that that there aren't male directors etc that that don't do a good job with this, right? And that are capable of doing a good job with it. But you can always kind of, I don't know, feel it. I, I think that we've said, we've almost said that a lot. I think, yeah. Um, that that there's there's a different uh, there's a different valence to the to the the way that a film approaches something. And You can tell. You can almost immediately go like, this was directed by a woman, or this was written by a woman, or this was produced by a woman um because it just feels different from when it's solely men who are the major creative forces engaging with it and i think that that's true when it comes to directing teams as much as it is uh, when it comes to writing and producing teams
0: Mm -hmm. yeah um check out save yourselves because it's really funny (laughs) and it's about a couple and i think people living through the pandemic could relate to it because it's this couple who decides to go off the grid and they don't really well maybe we can't because i think we're a little too glued to what's happening in the world but they turn off their devices and decide to just reconnect with each other and as soon as they turn off the communication the outside world aliens invade the planet and (laughs) chaos ensues it's hilarious it's really funny it's really sweet um watching these two people who realize that they have absolutely no life skills whatsoever are trying to um trying to survive an alien invasion and uh yeah it's a good one i
2: look um, forward to seeing it
0: yes i cannot wait for you to see it. it's it, i just i love a good horror comedy and that is a good horror comedy so yeah um so one of the things that you wanted to talk a little bit more about too is the monstrous feminine
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've kind of, I've kind of talked about it a little bit, but um, for anyone who does not know what the monstrous Feminine is, uh, it is based, I believe, and I might be misremembering, I believe it was, it it is based in an essay by uh, uh, Barbara Creed, who's a major influence um, on feminist film criticism, and particularly on horror criticism, uh, which is, which is basically the idea of women's bodies and the feminine as the site of monstrosity and she cites films like the brood uh like rosemary's baby um to a slightly lesser extent things like the omen carrie uh so it's sort of where the the woman is the monster or, or there's something monstrous within the woman um, and it's it's very similar in, in some of these different concepts of the return of the repressed, which I think I've mentioned a number of times before, uh, the idea that horror is uh, emblematic of a culture's repressions. And so, of course, women, and particularly when you're talking about menstruation or pregnancy or the sort of com- the combination of being re- of, uh, of male viewers and male um creatives being both attracted to and repelled by the female body and the female psyche uh and i again you know and and we've, we've sort of talked about this already with films like prevenge um where you're actually dealing with the monstrous feminine being filtered through a female perspective and i've said before that one of the the problems with horror one of the problems and one of the delights of horror is that women generally have a, a, a choice between being the victim or being the monster and what a lot of these films actually do is take that and say like okay well, well if we have if that's the choice that you're going to give us that patriarchy is going to give us the choice we're going to make is to be the monster it is far better to be the monster than it is to be the victim Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think that we see that in in films like jennifer's body where you get these women this this woman and these women generally who have been victimized um by their culture by their friends by their society etc and uh and ultimately they decide that okay well we rather than being victimized i'm going to be monstrous um sorry hold on a second (laughs) it's okay (laughs) all right there we go uh and and so th- this is a trope these these kinds of tropes get played out in all kinds of of films that aren't directed by women but when they are directed by women i think that there's a deeper understanding of what feminine monstrosity actually is and the attractiveness of it to women living in a patriarchal society
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i think that it was this idea that was where men really did not understand what you were talking about with carrie <laughs>
2: yeah absolutely no they definitely (laughs) did not cut i was just like okay see here's the thing we want to do that like that's uh and and it is it and i i think that it's important to note that this is not necessarily this is not necessarily good right we don't want to be villains right but when the when you have to make that choice when you're more or less forced to make that choice there seem there seem to be a lot of men who do not recognize the fact that you know in that situation most women are not going to want to be the innocent victim most Mm -hmm. women are going to want to be the killer right uh and that's important right it's important Mm -hmm. to note that and it's important to note the horror that is kind of uh, systemic within that
0: yeah well and i i think that it's when we look at different um like revenge stories for example and so often it's women taking revenge because they've been uh usually raped or at least assaulted and those stories can become very tiresome uh not that not to say that rape is like a tiresome thing because that's the wrong word for it but those stories just are so told and it's this feeling that like women are only interesting if they're mothers trying to protect their children or if they've been brutalized and and you can really see a big difference when men tell those stories versus when women tell those stories because men it's like they i i see this tendency that like okay so then these women become these uncontrollable monsters that sort of lose their humanity versus when women tell these stories it's it's much different it's it's like there's usually there's a reluctance to it they just kind of they have to they have to take revenge and i mean it's not that they don't want to go you know get back at these people that have attacked them but the feeling of it and the motivation feels very different and i think that's just naturally because men and women tell stories in very different ways and understand the female psyche in very different ways
2: yeah well i mean in in relation to that there was a discussion you know i i I hate bringing up twitter and being like ah as we were saying on twitter the other day (laughs) but there was there was a discussion on twitter about um revenge films right which Mm -hmm. a number of horror films do fit into yeah uh and and in certain as you're saying in certain revenge films there there's a difference to the way that men take revenge and the way that women take revenge very often the reasons for women taking revenge uh, female characters taking revenge are uh they someone has tried to take their humanity from them right whereas male characters usually they are taking revenge because someone else has done something to them or to their property so to mm-hmm. to their homes uh to women that um that they're involved with so their wives daughters etc girlfriends. Right uh whereas with women very often it's it's revenge for rape or revenge for violation at some level and they do it because uh they they are trying to regain the humanity that has been stolen from them Mm
1: -hmm.
2: um and and the example that i used is the witch which is not written by a woman is not directed by a woman but is one of the most feminist films i've seen in a long time (laughs) uh and you could also put into that category uh black christmas the 2019 yes which is just a great movie and i understand why men hate it and i think that if you're a man and you hate the 2019 black christmas then i think that says a lot about you
0: (laughs) yep yep exactly uh because it's very in your face it does not shy away from exactly what it's about and i think that it it holds up a mirror to men and it really does say yes all men and that does not mean that all men are rapists or you know are gonna assault women but how often do we see situations where they know exactly what's going on and they just turn a blind eye they don't want to get involved and that's all equally well maybe not equally but that's all just as bad it's all part of continuing to perpetuate these these issues you know i was watching revenge last night not Prevenge. revenge um directed by coralie uh i can't think of her last name um but yeah like there's there's a scene where the main girl uh she's about to be raped and there's another guy who's at the house and he walks in he sees what's about to happen he knows and he can see the fear on her face and he just shuts the door and walks away and it's you know when she goes after them he's just as culpable as the guy who did it
2: yeah and and i think that that as, as you said that that's one of the things that black christmas also engages with really well that it isn't just the specific frat boys et cetera. it is an entire system that perpetuates violence against women that perpetuates uh, keeping women down, right? Keeping mm-hmm. women in a particular place that that the male culture says is acceptable.
0: Right.
2: Um, and is just the, you know, and it, it's approaches being it's just the natural state of things. That's just the way things are, mm-hmm. right? And we're not going to change it. And how dare you try to change it? And that is something that I, I think I, I, after I saw the 2019 Black Christmas, I was like, okay, I want every man that I know women should watch it too, because it's a great film, but I want every man that I know to go watch this movie and to really think about what it is saying, Mm -hmm. Um, because it doesn't let anyone off the hook. It doesn't say like, oh, there are some nice guys. It's like, yeah, there are some nice guys. There are some guys who are perfectly decent people and they are still participants in patriarchal culture and they have to make the choice to not play that same game. They have to make the choice to actually try to do something about it. Right. and and it is not, you know, and, and we talked about it in terms of the Me Too movement as well, that it's not just the guys who are the predators, it's their friends, it's their classmates, it's the, the men who stand by and watch it happen, and are like, well, I'm not that person. It's like, no, but I I'm willing to bet that one of your buddies is, and you mm-hmm. aren't doing anything about it, and right. you have to do something about it
0: exactly and the biggest thing that you can do is believe women because so often what happens in these situations is that men will convince themselves that it's not true and so then then they're not culpable in their minds because oh well but i just didn't think that he was capable of something like that and and no you have to believe that every man is capable of something like that uh not all of them do it but they're all capable and so you have to start from a place of believing women when they say this happened to me and uh because when there are occasionally story uh, times when it is not true and those stories fall apart very quickly there are very few and far between and when they happen they usually fall apart and uh Yeah. so if you just start from the default position of believing women then if uh if it turns out that she's not honest you're gonna find that out really quickly and you and it's gonna be okay (laughs) you know yeah sorry this is a big (laughs) that's a big thing for me so
2: i I, well i think that honestly i think that it's a big thing for all of us i actually in watching black christmas i was in en- enraged there was one point in that film uh where i was like i realized what it was doing and i was it was great and i was like this is perfect and this is so true and i'm so angry about it <laughs> um because it it hit in a really explicit and clear way yeah. exactly what the problem of patriarchal culture is hmm and and it didn't pull punches on that it didn't like i say it, it did you know as you said it did definitely declare yes all men and yeah. uh in and in a very explicit way mm-hmm. um yeah no and and again i think that it's important when we get these kinds of films to actually talk about them and to talk about the fact that horror can express those kinds of things that horror can express the horror of our culture and uh, the horror of the way that people behave to each other, and that eventually, you know, something has got to change.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so we got a couple of comments because you had you had tossed out on Twitter. You know, let us know your favorite horror films with female directors, writers, visionaries. And so we already mentioned Anina. Uh, she had talked about The Hitchhiker and Wendy Toys in the picture. Um, Mason Perrier who is at commie mason said i saw the invitation a few months back and it was one of the scariest things i've ever i've seen in years um so i wanted to talk a little bit about the invitation because we kind of mentioned it but then moved on to other things um but when like how long ago did you first see the invitation do you remember
2: uh it must have been a couple of years. I didn't see it when it came out. I know that. Um and then it, it was put on Netflix and it was one of those films that sat on my Netflix queue for ages and then I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to watch this movie finally. <laughs> uh yeah. That is that is a film. <laughs> it's so it's, good. <laughs> it is so good. It is so good. <laughs> yeah. It's so good and it's such a slow burn because you're like something's weird. Mm -hmm. something's off and you know it's a horror film and you're like something's off but okay
0: and then it gets
2: and then you (laughs) it starts to kind of gain momentum you're like holy shit
0: it's one like when we first started talking about horror films back a few weeks ago and i had said that my favorite type of horror movies are when you really are questioning is this real or is this not and i think the invitation starts off really well with that because you've got logan marshall green who is not tom hardy um and he uh i feel like i have to say that every time because i'm i swear that they are the same person but um (laughs) but uh but yeah he's he senses that something's off he's you know questioning like well where's this friend where's that you know what's going on here and but he's also got all kinds of reasons to be a little bit parent like his story like his history his personal history it would make sense that he's just kind of a paranoid guy and so you're kind of going along thinking like well maybe it's not really happening maybe there's a reasonable explanation for all of this odd stuff that's going on and so it's really fun to just kind of be along for the ride with him and and see and then when it when it builds up to that final moment it's just like oh the chills (laughs) when you see that i don't want to give anything away for people who have not seen it yet
2: yeah it it does it does a really good job at establishing that that sense of dread and that sense that something is off right without uh without telegraphing it too much yeah right so it's believable that he would stay it's believable that they would stay there and that as things get stranger and stranger there's just like well but maybe there's another explanation for this or well maybe it's harmless you know all of this stuff, and, and it, it, it makes good use of that kind of perspective where there's never a point in the film as a viewer where I was like, oh, now you're being stupid. Right. right? You know, so th- very often in horror films, there's that sense of like, why don't you, you know, don't go into that basement? It's a stupid thing to go in that basement. Don't play with the Ouija board. <laughs> it's a stupid thing to play with the Ouija board. That doesn't happen in the invitation. There's no point in which you're like, you're being stupid and you should leave now by the time the horror actually hits you understand why he stayed the entire time
0: mm-hmm. and why
2: no one has tried to flee etc
0: yeah so it's oh.
2: it's very effective and it it paces itself really well
0: yeah yeah that's a good one um and then peg alloy who is at the media witch she actually included a list and a couple of these we've already talked about but some of them we have not um she said relic the wind the love witch Thelma Jennifer's body knives and skin and amulet
2: some of those I haven't actually seen
0: did you see the relic or Uh, I don't think it's I don't remember it's the or, or just relic
2: uh i can't remember because there's one that is either called relic or the relic that is like an old um, um, older like 90s film i think that is completely un- not associated with, right <laughs> with us but um, now i'm looking to
0: make sure i get the right one yeah okay this one is just relic it's okay it's no uh no article at the beginning it's relic okay. with um um emily mortimer yeah okay. emily mortimer bella heathcote and robin nevin did you you did not see that earlier i haven't summer?
2: seen it i haven't seen it yet um again
0: hmm? oh man that's another one it's um yeah. natalie erica james directed it and then it's co-written by her and christian white and this is another one that um much like jennifer kent's the babadook it's not exactly about what it is about <laughs> you know like the yeah. it's 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 very allegorical and um in this case it's very much about dementia and they're pretty open about that it's that's not really a spoiler to say that um but it's just this it's this three generation type movie it's a mother daughter and and granddaughter and just watching the way that that this uh, manifests in the home the way that it is portrayed the way that it affects the relationships between these three women it's so well done and it's really just such a it's a beautiful and a heartbreaking story and it's also genuinely terrifying and um just really really effective as a horror movie but also really effective as uh, a representation for something much deeper.
2: Well, I mean, you have sold me on it. Uh, (laughs) I, I do want to see it. It's just, yeah, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. I have seen uh, Thelma.
0: Yeah. Thelma's good. We kind of didn't really talk about that last week, did we? No, no. We did. Or
2: when we talked about international horror. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Thelma. And again, it's, Thelma has that, that degree of allegorical, um, it it is somewhat allegorical in the sense that it is about in in a similar way that something like raw is allegorical, Mm -hmm. um, that it's about, it's, it's using horror to talk about, uh, to, to talk about kind of the pressures that, that women experience and to, and to also talk about desire and feminine desire and what that means. And, um, and what it looks like in a a way that when it when it has to be repressed or controlled or uh or is is said to not be natural or something like that and Mm -hmm. i I think that thelma deals with that really well in in, you know in a different but similar way that raw does
0: yeah now i have not seen the wind um that keeps popping up on lists and i'm like i should watch that because i haven't um and same with knives and skin and amulet so Definitely some that I'm adding to my list.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So thank you. Um all right. Any others that you wanted to throw out there for people to to look for to
2: I think that we need to mention at least really briefly "Summer Party Massacre too. Yes. <laughs> uh because we cannot like I know that we mentioned Summer Party Massacre earlier, but I think that we need to talk about Summer Party Massacre too.
1: <laughs> we um, do.
0: For I sure. think that
2: we do. <laughs> What do you think of Summer Party Massacre too, Karen?
0: Oh my gosh, the killer is so hot.
2: <laughs> right. Okay. So when I watched that movie, I was like, oh, it's it's, you know, it's a musical and it's like this girl group rock musical, but a lot of it is is incidental music. You know, it's their they're actually they're a girl group and they go away to um to like one of their father's condos mm-hmm. uh in in this sort of not not completely inhabited development and they're going to pray because they're going to practice their their rock music (laughs) and and so all most of the songs are a part of that right yeah and then the driller killer shows up (laughs) and the last i think it's the last like 15 or 20 minutes Uh (laughs) i'm just like it's like literally he's literally singing and he's got his like guitar with the gigantic drill on the end of it (laughs) and and yeah and he's hot i was just like i am really attracted to the driller killer this is really disturbing
0: (laughs) (laughs) well and it's funny because he's like not really hot for any particular reason he just is you know i mean i guess it makes sense because he's supposed to be this like or he's presented as this like rock star like rock god type of guy but um
2: yeah it's very like 1980s you know sort of rockabilly throwback or something like that yeah. to, to some of the you know the leather and the slick hair and the cigarette and like all of that it's, it's like he's the bad boy mm-hmm. um but yeah there's just i mean the film does it really well you know and, and i i guess we could talk about the fact this this whole issue of you know this in the slasher in in a slasher movie of you know, the women at some level wanting to be killed or wanting <laughs> wanting to be penetrated. I mean, that is what this the the story is very often about. And yeah. watching Summer Party Massacre, which kind of puts this up in big letters, basically. <laughs> um and yeah, she taps into the fact that just like, oh, so the driller killer is like really hot and <laughs> you know, he like break dances. Over the point. <laughs> and is singing all these really sexually charged songs you're just like i am distressed by this but i also love it
0: that one song is really catchy too yeah yeah it's good (laughs) it's it's pretty decent rock (laughs) yeah uh well and i think that we should also mention that slumber party massacre 2 is a sequel to the first one the third one is like just separate and it just shares a name but uh this one is about the younger sister of the girl who survived the first movie and she's like off in an institution now Mm -hmm. and so this is about her younger sister Courtney and um which is played by um Crystal Bernard who was I think probably best known for Wings um but yeah I I think it's (laughs) i think that makes it it adds to the delight of it because she's got this sister who's in an institution after being you know tormented and and watching her friends get killed and then she's having all these nightmares about it so then it starts off like there's just these dreams this guy can't really be real but then it turns out like oh now he's suddenly there and he's after her and it's like no particular reason he just is
2: (laughs) Well, and and the whole thing is is structured around the fact that she keeps that she, that she keeps on having dreams about this boy at school, right? That right. She has a yeah. Crush on, and who's like kind of interested in her, and they and they like have a thing, and he's the football player and all that. <laughs> and the whole thing is, you know, her sister in her dreams warning her, don't go all the way, <laughs> uh, you know, and all of this stuff. And and so of course, the the fact that it is so sexually tinged uh, is is pretty obvious. I mean, you know, there's no there's no question about it <laughs> but oh yeah it, it's
0: very overt
2: <laughs> but it it highlights that kind of sexuality that is inherent in, in slasher films that is usually treated more seriously obviously but it's treating it from you know a more female perspective and uh and i always like it when female directors complicate things by making the villain or the killer or whoever else really hot
1: Mm -hmm. and
2: you know it's it's the sort of marlon brando thing in streetcar named desire when marlon brando walks on the screen just like okay i get it yeah all right (laughs) all right and it's disturbing as a female viewer because of the kind of character that he is the kind of person that he is um but so you get that you get that in some dracula movies as well you're just like i get it all right yeah i will totally be bit by that guy like i I i'll go to the dark side for that
0: it's like chris hemsworth in bad times of the el royale like yep i would join his cult and absolutely yeah i would fight for a night at the big house with him yeah uh
2: (laughs) yeah and and i think Slumber party massacre kind of taps into that in a very humorous an overt and you know slightly ridiculous way
0: yeah and i think that's what makes it so much fun is the fact that it's not trying to pretend or disguise what it is it's it's very just like in your face of like yeah this is this is what i what we're about yeah. and girls are sexual beings and that's okay <laughs> 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 even if it gets like- them killed
2: <laughs> stalked by a man with a gigantic drill on the end of his guitar there you
0: go. i mean you know
2: right. so yeah everybody watch watch summer party massacre too you can even watch summer party massacre too without seeing summer party massacre yeah although i don't know why you would because they're both great films and i think like just over an hour both of them so mm-hmm.
0: yeah make an afternoon of it watch them both they're both available on shutter and uh yeah delightful um the other thing that i want to mention that we haven't really talked about is mary lambert's pet cemetery
2: that's an odd one what are your feelings about pet cemetery
0: so pet cemetery is one that i feel like it's i feel like it's hampered by budget problems and i think if if she had been able to really make the movie she was promised she's going to be able to make that it would have been a much different situation um but i do think that it's good i think it's pretty effective especially when you compare it to the remake um which completely loses its heart because i think that i think that the original from what 89 that she did i think um it understands this this uh, parental love and this really profound sense of loss when they when parents lose a child and i'm not saying that the remake didn't understand that but i feel like it was conveyed much better in the original movie and i think that if she'd been able to make her movie and had been able to keep the money that they had promised her for the budget and especially that's true in the sequel i think it would have it would have been it would have been better um but i also don't think it's a bad movie and i think that as an adaptation of a stephen king story it's it's pretty good what do you think
2: yeah i agree i mean i i actually i saw pet cemetery not that long ago again it was one of those that had been kind of a blind spot and i finally watched it i liked it it's very it's it's very 1980s.
0: <laughs> it feels like a yeah, like a late 80s, early 90s TV movie.
2: Yeah, it has mm-hmm. those elements to it. That that some of the performances are really good. Um, what's his name? I I can't. Edmund Ed Gwynn.
0: Ed Gwynn. Yeah.
2: Uh, is is just wonderful. Even though he's he's been aped a lot, and I think because it's such an iconic character, than in the way that he plays it. Um, and he's great. So every I i enjoy it it's a weird movie and i i agree with you and say it's like a tv movie it's it doesn't quite have what i think it needs to have to be really great but at the same time it has some very cool things in it
0: mm-hmm. much better than the remake
2: yeah which i still haven't seen because yeah. everybody said it
0: sucked <laughs> yeah well it just it to me it feels heartless and i think this i mean we've talked about this a little bit i think one of the big problems well first of all you don't cast jason clark in a role that's supposed to be emotional um because he just doesn't have that kind of range (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) i thought he was good in what was it chappaquiddick yeah and he's good in mudbound too i think because he he he's very i think limited honestly you know i don't think that jason clark is a terrible actor i think that he's just limited in what he can do and i think that um trying to have a character that has this emotional depth to him is a little bit beyond his abilities and i'm sorry i wish that that wasn't true but i really feel like it is and i think that he just because of that he wasn't a very effective lewis because that's conveying this this man this grief-stricken man who's lost his child i think just doesn't it doesn't come across very well but um but also on top of that i just think that the directors fell into the trap that so many people do when they're remaking movies and that is that they get it sort of ends up being like especially these types of movies it ends up being like this highlight reel of well we're just gonna base the movie around like the most noteworthy moments of the original but it doesn't but the the emotional elements don't necessarily get translated in they don't get pulled in with it and this was a big problem with the poltergeist remake for example too where it's like okay well we know we have to have the tree we know we have to have the clown but it's like what about all the little quieter smaller moments in between and i think that's what was lacking in the pet cemetery remake too and i think that's where mary lambert really got things right was that she took time to build this family's relationship she really took time to um to to get this couple that really seemed like they cared about each other and this family and building and also building the relationship between lewis and judd too and i feel like Mm -hmm. the remake just didn't do that Mm. so that's why women should just direct all the movies because we understand human (laughs) emotions and
2: (laughs) i yeah i i mean yes we do definitely definitely. (laughs) but it is interesting i mean when it comes to horror remakes like, like you say the most effective ones are the ones that kind of take the concept. Or mm-hmm. take, you know, in the case of Pet Cemetery would be the book, right? Yeah. And then do their own thing. Because one of the reasons why some of those moments in Pet Cemetery that are iconic are iconic is is because the film itself, as you say, builds to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's similar in, you know, in something, well, in something like Poltergeist or in something like, you know, there are numerous versions of the shining yeah one of the reasons you don't want to redo the elevator the blood in the elevator or um you know jack nicholson uh doing trying to to bash his wife's head in with a baseball bat etc because there are these iconic moments these iconic images but they're good because the film itself has created has created that atmosphere and that tension and that um those relationships around them so it isn't just like okay we're going to hit the beats that we need to hit it's more like you know the you can't recapture that so try to do something different with them
0: yeah yep exactly and i think too many people just don't and it's not necessarily that they don't want to i i just i don't know what it is i don't know what gets lost or why um Other than that, I think sometimes people just want to do something because they think it looks cool and they're missing a big part of it, which is that connection. Yeah, You need that emotional development and attachment to the characters. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes horror uh the the best horror films and i think that that's this is why that term elevated horror came about was because some films do this really well and others don't and i think that the movies where you really connect with people on a deeper level and it's not just about the scares it's about something more i think those are the movies they get called elevated when really they're just good (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) so
2: good horror yes there's because there is bad horror and there is good
0: horror yeah exactly
2: (laughs) just like anything else
0: exactly so any others that you wanted to throw out there before we wrap it up
2: i think that that is it i mean there are so many um that you know we probably probably ones that we haven't seen ones that we haven't talked about but uh uh, I, I I really do think that it's worth you know actually going out and and seeking out some of the older films. Mm-hmm. um and some of the ones like you say the one, the ones that we don't necessarily expect to be directed by women so the summer party massacre series i had avoided for years because yeah. i'd seen like posters of, like oh it's you know it's a stupid like whatever 1980s misogynist slasher movies like i don't have any interest and then i found out i was like oh it's actually written and directed by women i'm absolutely there and and it, <laughs> it turned out to be really great so yeah it's it's good to to kind of expand your repertoire a little bit and uh, and particularly look at some of the older films that that do interesting things um but you know it's not women just didn't suddenly discover horror we've been doing it for a long time
0: we've been living it for a long time so of course we've been making horror movies since the beginning (laughs) (laughs) but yeah a lot of these are available on shutter uh amazon prime has a bunch and criterion has a few as well so Mm. um definitely seek them out and um you know i think just a couple more we did talk about them a little bit in our international episode but also you know make sure to look for things like uh a girl walks home alone at night tigers are not afraid some of those as well so look for older films look for international films there are some really great ones shutter uh i mentioned before that they have collections and one of the collections that they've got is um I think it's called a woman's perspective or something like that, and it's just a whole collection of of uh, horror films directed by women. So look for it. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I think this was a lot of fun. I think that's a good place to wrap things up. But um, we appreciate everyone so much for listening, and we especially want to thank our patrons who help keep things going. And so, special thanks to Heather, Adriana, Michael. James, Katie, Carriotta, Mason, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. And if you would like to be counted among their number, you can patronize us by joining patreon.com/slash dame and helping us out. Of course, we understand these are difficult times and we don't expect anybody to to do so but if you do um we really really appreciate you and we've got some special things coming your way we're going to be uh kind of cleaning up and and redesigning our patreon a little bit so um so yeah we're happy to have you on board we also do have our ko-fi if you just want to throw in a couple of dollars here or there co-fi.com slash citizen dame and of course we've got our zazzle store zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod where you can get t-shirts and and masks uh, definitely masks wear your damn mask keep it on your face when you go out in public don't infect other people that includes
2: putting <laughs> it over your fucking nose
0: yes seriously <laughs> Jeez. Ah, uh, i don't know what the problem is here but oh well anyway um and of course you can find us on the interwebs in lots of different ways we are on twitter and instagram at citizen Dame pod you can email us citizen pod at gmail.com and be sure to check out our website citizen pod.com where we have lots of fun stuff coming your way um there's some um uh Reviews—that's the word. <laughs> there, I'm. Gonna... <laughs> it's been a tiring day already, hasn't it? It really <laughs> has. And it's only you know 11 a.m., but that's okay. Um, <laughs> we uh, we do have some things there, uh, recent stuff that Lauren did from NYFF, and I'm going to be adding my AFI reviews this weekend. So I'm finally got some chan- a chance to sit down and buckle down and write. So um, stuff like Wander Darkly uh and some other fun things coming there and you can also reach out to us individually lauren where are you
2: i am on twitter and instagram at lh
0: business and i am on twitter and instagram at karen m peterson thank you so much for joining us we'll catch you next time
2: Bye. what did you girls expect excuse me i told you something like this was going to happen Okay, you humiliated those guys up there. Of course they're pissed. And that gives them an excuse to harass us? What if a bunch of frat bros had gotten up and sang a song about how, I don't know, women were just bimbos who like to show off their tits, then yeah, you'd be livid. It's a little different,
0: speech. How? Why are you allowed to say all this shit about men and we're supposed to just sit here and take it? Because men have all the power.
2: Not all men have power. Did you just not Don't. all men? Did you just? Don't. Not all men are rapists, Chris. No. Okay, I'm not. Nobody. But you just lumped me in with the bad ones no. because I'm a man. Nobody is calling you a rapist. quiet you With your man-hating. Man-hating. What did I say that was so okay, offensive? Calm. Just calm down. We're trying to have a rest. Calm down. Yes. You want me to calm down? Let's calm, yeah, down.
0: You calm down.
2: Okay. You just Shut trying to. Up! What would you do if I, I just get out? You know what? You need to leave. The second I have Leave. A point, I don't no, give a no. shit. You second I have a good point. Who are me you? Get out of here. I should have just dumped you last I night. Don't I give don't
0: give a shit. Day. Get out. You're hysterical. Jesus. Oh, my God.